Praise the Lord for his word, for gathering of saints together. So good to see all of you today. Please take your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we have some out on the table in the lobby here for you, and you're welcome to grab one of those. Ecclesiastes, if you're not sure where that is, basically open your Bible to the middle, and you'll probably come, I came here to Job accidentally. So then you go a little bit further to Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, and uh, we we'll be walking through this book together for the next few months. I believe that it'll probably take us to about the middle or end of August. This is what it's laid out right now. And uh, we're going to take this passage by passage. So today will be chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Ecclesiastes is a difficult book and uh, is a little bit intimidating to, to preach through. I've never preached through this before. Uh, maybe a few isolated passages here or there, but I appreciate your prayers and understanding as we walk through this together. And I hope it'll be very fruitful for us. That'll be uh, eye-opening for us as we really deal heavily with the realities of life and the, the brokenness of this world that we live in, that Israel was just praying about and for. Uh, the, wor- the book of Ecclesiastes is a long meditation on the, um, the fall of man, on the, the fall into sin and rebellion, and what effect that has had on the world in which we live. And so I think this will be a fruitful book for us and uh, dark at times but in a way that points us to the light, that reminds us of the hope of the gospel. So let's read through Ecclesiastes chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 1 through 11, and then we'll talk through this passage together. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things. Nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. After the 1977 Major League Baseball season, a man by the name of Bart Giamatti, who later would become the commissioner of baseball, wrote an article called The Green Fields of the Mind. And he writes this article about how baseball is a metaphor of how things come and go and quickly pass away and We move from one season to the next, one baseball season to the next baseball season, but also one season of the year to another season. And essentially how baseball reminds us that we might have hope, especially if you are a fan of a team that doesn't win as often as you would like, which in his case was the Red Sox. And at that point, it had been about 70 or 80 years since the Red Sox had won the World Series. And so every year, the Red Sox would go into the season with hope that they would finally conquer the evil Yankees and... Typically, the season would end, and that would not be the case. The Yankees would win the World Series again was typically the case. And so he writes at the end of the 1977 season, It breaks your heart 
It is designed to break your heart. The game begins in the spring when everything else begins again, and it blossoms in the summer, filling the afternoons and evenings. Then as soon as the chill rains come, it stops and leaves you to face the fall alone. You count on it, rely on it to buffer the passage of time, to keep the memory of sunshine and high skies alive. And then just when the days are all twilight, when you need it most, it stops. Today, October 2, a Sunday of rain and broken branches and leaf-clogged drains and slick streets. It stopped and summer was gone. This man understood that life is fleeting, that you might have the sun shining nice and brightly for a while and then eventually fall comes again. and It's leaf-clogged drains and slippery streets all over again, just like it was a year ago, just like it was the last time this came around. This man understood that life is fleeting, which is what this passage before us tells us today. And what the author of Ecclesiastes, who will describe who that is in a moment, or who we believe that to be in a moment, what he's working through is this meditation on what am I even here to do? It just feels like I do the same thing over and over again with the same results and not really feeling any better about it after it's done. I think this is likely the way that You feel at times in your life, perhaps you've had the same job for decades or the same relationship status for decades, and you just think, man, is this ever going to change? Probably not. Even if it does, am I going to feel any better? Probably not. These are the kinds of problems that we could say that Ecclesiastes is working through for us. The passage begins by telling us that these are the words of the preacher, and the book, the name Ecclesiastes even comes basically from the Greek word that is translating the Hebrew word that basically means one who gathers people, who assembles people, who calls people together, and they're gathered together for the sake of listening, for the sake of hearing a preacher. And so these are the words of the preacher, the son of David. Well, that sounds immediately, based on what we've just read before this in the Bible, to sound like Solomon, the wisest, most wealthy person in the world, And he was king in Jerusalem after David. And so likely this was Solomon. Certainly scholars disagree on that point. But even if it wasn't Solomon, he's certainly writing from the perspective of Solomon. And so I I, I tend to agree with the scholars who believe that this is Solomon writing this. And so we have this wise, wealthy man writing about what is the point of life. And that's essentially what he's asking in this passage, in this opening passage, which is kind of like the prologue to the entire book of Ecclesiastes. So everything that comes after this in Ecclesiastes that we'll look at between now and, say, the end of August is essentially meditating in some way on what Solomon writes here in this passage, verses 1 through 11. So while we don't have a ton of certainty about who wrote this, and it doesn't especially matter uh, we can make some good guesses, if we want to put it that way, or draw some good conclusions, that's a better way to put it, about what he's writing and why he's writing. And he seems to have written this so that he could wrestle through his own experiences with life. This sounds like an older man looking back on his life, an older Solomon, we could say, looking back on his experiences and his accomplishments and wrestling with what he would say were, were the absurdities of his life or the frustrations of his life. And again, we have those same frustrations and same irritations and absurdities and enigmas in our own life. 
And this word vanity that is used here in verse 2 so many times, five times here in verse 2 alone, is used about 38 times in the whole book. And it's really an important word if we're going to get the message of this book because it's used so frequently and there are similar words that are describing the same concept. Essentially, the word vanity here means something that is like a breath. It's like when you go outside on a winter day and you breathe and your hot air hits the cold air, your hot breath hits the cold air and it's there and then it's gone. And essentially, it's just a reminder that our lives are fleeting and are vanishing. And so that's why the author of James, James himself, says in chapter 4, what is your life? It is even a vapor. And essentially, James there is looking back on Ecclesiastes and saying, oh, my life is quick. It's gone. It's frustrating at times because I don't know what I'm here to do and why my accomplishments don't seem to matter. I think this word also includes the idea that life is an enigma. It's like a puzzle that is impossible to figure out. One of those that you might find in a doctor's office, a wooden bunch of blocks, and you're trying to put it together while you're waiting there and you never do it. Try it again the next time you're there and you never get it solved then. And it's like our lives are this frustrating puzzle that we can never quite figure out. Life is an enigma. And by it being the vanity of vanities, it's kind of like saying the king of kings, the greatest of kings, or the song of songs is the greatest of songs. Well, here, the vanity of vanities is the greatest, most frustrating of vanities. And he says all is vanity. Everything in life is an enigma, we could say, is confusing and difficult to understand impossible to understand. Verse 3 is really the question that drives the rest of this passage and in some ways the rest of this book. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, wow, I'm about to die. Was this really all worth it? Is this really all there is? This past week, I heard that it was the two-year anniversary of when cathedral at Notre Dame in France had that fire a couple years ago. It was the two-year anniversary of that, and so they were talking about how they were trying to find just the right trees to cut down, to find just the right pieces of wood to use to replace that cathedral, the parts of the cathedral that were burned a few years ago. And so looking at that story, I remembered that the cathedral there took Several hundred years to build. I think it went from like the 1160s to the 1350s or somewhere right around there before that cathedral was built. And that means that you have all kinds of very gifted, you would have to think the very best, most gifted craftsmen and woodcutters and stoneworkers and blacksmiths and all these people working their entire lives on that cathedral and they died before it was done. And they never got to see the results of it. That's what it feels like in our lives. Even if you do the best job you could do at your job, even if you do the best job at raising your children, even if you do the best job at saving your money, you're still going to die. See that rich guy who lives over there? He's going to die. See that poor guy who lives over there? He's going to die. See that person who seems to be super wise? Going to die. Super foolish, makes all kinds of crazy mistakes going to die. Solomon here goes, what is the point? What do you gain by all the toil at which you toil? He uses the word toil, I think, 30 sometimes in this book as well. I can't remember the exact count, but over and over again, he talks about the work we do with our hands, with our lives, and it's just a vapor. It's just gone before anybody even knows. That's what he says in verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes 
but the earth remains forever. And he's being a little bit hyperbolic there. Based on the rest of the Bible, we know the earth doesn't remain forever, forever. But from the perspective of someone living now, yeah, it looks like it lives forever. It goes on forever. There is no one who is alive today who was alive during the Civil War. There are very few people who were alive even just 100 years ago. You look around at everyone in this room, if you fast forward 100 years from now, it is almost a certainty that no one in this room right now will still be alive 100 years from now. So what's the point? You would think, well, this means I should just go live however I want. Well, as we'll see in chapter 2, Solomon tried that. It didn't work out so well. I should just work harder. Still going to die. Still not going to amount to a whole lot at the end. How many of you, just out of curiosity, can name all four of your biological grandparents? Okay, it's about, about a half dozen hands. How many of you can name all eight of your biological great-grandparents? All right, I don't see any hands. I certainly couldn't. I think I could name maybe two of them. <laughs> Great. I mean, I realize I, I came from them, right? Like, they're partially responsible for me being here today. I can't even tell you their names. Even if I could tell you their names, I couldn't tell you a single one of their occupations or what they were known for. I couldn't tell you if they were funny or smart or foolish. I couldn't tell you anything about them. And we're just going back a couple of generations. I hope you're encouraged by that, all right? Your children's children may not even know your name. Your children's children's children will certainly not know anything about you. And that's what Solomon is meditating on here. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Then he uses three pictures from nature. He talks about the sun, the wind, and water. The sun rises, the sun sets, and it starts to rise again, over and over again. You almost want to throw up thinking about just the repetitiveness of life, the monotony of life. The wind Blows to the south, blows to the north, in Chicago, both directions at one time, and then it goes in the other direction. It just keeps on going. And he uses this picture of it being like it's on circuits, it's just going around and around like a race car track. And then he pictures water. All streams run to the sea. How many of you have seen the Mississippi River? Probably a lot of you have. Beautiful, powerful, raging water at points. And then it flows down to the Gulf of Mexico. And it just keeps on going. It's been doing that for thousands of years. And the water level's never gotten really significantly higher. Sure, it has high tides, you know, so to speak, at, at times where buildings or homes along the Mississippi River get flooded every couple of years or so. But it goes into the ocean, and that doesn't seem to really change water levels. This has been happening over and over again. What's the point? That's what he's arguing here, is this all feels pointless. This all feels meaningless. This all feels like an enigma. All things are full of weariness, which takes you back to that opening sentence, all is vanity. Everything feels like it's full of weariness. And now where he just used three pictures from nature, now he's going to use three pictures of us as people. A man can't utter it. That means you can't say enough about it. A man, uh, the eye is not satisfied with seeing and the ear is never filled with hearing. So your mouth, your eyes, and your ears are always wanting more. You've never come to the point where you say, you know, I've streamed enough shows on Netflix. I'm never going to be interested in doing that again. I've never heard enough songs, or I've now heard enough songs. I never need to hear another song in my life. For some of us, it's like blasphemy to say something like that. 
I, I just don't have anything else to say. I could never say another word again. No one's ever going to say that. And verse 9 is just a summary of everything he said to this point. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. It just keeps on going and going and going. And it just feels like a waste. This past summer, our boys went um, blueberry picking over in northwest Indiana. Very hot day. But because we were already over there, so we were at the end of blueberry season, I said, let's go apple picking too. So blueberry picking and apple picking in the same day. It was like the end of blueberry season and the beginning of apple season. So we go and start picking beautiful apples at this apple farm. But what was, I had never gone apple picking before, but what was discouraging to me, almost like gives you a pit in your stomach, is you think about those people who worked year round to protect those apple trees, to keep bugs from infesting them, and, and worked really hard so that you'd have all these nice ripe apples. There are probably as many apples on the ground rotting away covered in worms and just brown and mushy. You had to kind of walk circumspectly so as to not step on them and get the goo all over your shoes. Just as many rotten apples on the ground as there were good apples on the tree. And you just think, man, that rots. I mean, literally, but it just really is discouraging that you would work that hard and a good portion of your fruit is laying there on the ground and is completely worthless. And this is what Solomon is meditating on. My life feels like it's worthless. Like no matter what I do, I'm still going to die, and everything I do is going to be forgotten. And by and large, this is the case for everything in our experience. Verse 10 meditates on that. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? And you might be like, yeah, see, I've got one right here. This is new. I mean, this wasn't around 10 years ago, or even in some cases, uh, you know, the technologies we use, there was nothing like them, even say 30 or 50 years ago. See, this is new. Well, let's just kind of unpack it a little bit. It still had to be designed by somebody, still had to be manufactured by somebody, still had to be sold by somebody, still had to be bought by somebody. What's new about that? Absolutely nothing. Okay, well, the COVID vaccine, that's new. There was nothing like that even a year ago. Okay, well, a thousand years from now, who's going to be talking about that? A thousand years from now, no one's even going to be thinking about COVID. There'll be all kinds of other problems, but... There's nothing new about it. You're just repeating the cycle over and over and over again, and that feels pointless. It has been already in the ages before us. Are you discouraged yet? Are you depressed yet? I mean, you should, you should try reading through all of Ecclesiastes in one sitting, which a group of us did yesterday. You're kind of like, ooh, after you finish reading it. Really? This is all there is? But is there anybody here who disagrees with this conclusion? that it feels pointless, that it feels like an enigma, like it feels like, and you're gone, and you're dead. I mean, I'm not trying to be discouraging here. My dad died when he was 55. If I follow on the trajectory, I have less than 20 years, 18 years, and I'll be in the grave just like my dad has been for 17 years. That's just a fact of life, and it could be later today that I'm dead. Not Paul. Solomon. Paul too, later on. Okay? Paul alludes to a passage like this in Romans 8, but Solomon in this case wants that to weigh on you so that you will ask the really important questions. And you're not asking, what time do the Cubs play today? You're asking, when I die, will it have mattered? Will I have done what I was here to do? 
And the way Solomon answers that throughout this book, I hope will be really arresting for you. I hope it'll make you want to be here every Sunday so you can hear what the next passage says about this question. What does man gain by all the toil with which he toils? Will it really matter what I did with my life? If this is the case, how should I live today? That's kind of the question that this book is driving you to think through. Am I living today the way that 10 years from now I'll wish I, have, I would have lived? Because there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. You might say, well, there's some exceptions to that. I mean, we remember Solomon. We remember you know, Napoleon, or we remember Julius Caesar or various people. Okay, but by and large, I mean, who can name anything about, say, William Taft? He was the president of this country. Who can say anything about him? He was the most important person in the country. A hundred years from now, who can say anything about George Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Joe Biden? I mean, All these people, the most important person in this country will be forgotten. And Solomon wants that to weigh on you and to sit on you heavily so that when you get out of bed, the answer to why am I doing this again? Why am I getting in that beater of a car to drive to that beater of a store to do my awful job so I can come back and go to bed again? Why am I doing this? And he doesn't want your answer to be, there is no reason to do this. He wants you to be working through these questions. You'll come to the right answers, all right? And those answers, he gives them as the book goes on. And it's super important that you read parts of Solomon in light of of what Solomon says, in light of what Solomon says elsewhere. So he says at one point, the love of money is essentially a terrible thing. But then later on, he says, money solves everything, (laughs) How are you supposed to kind of reconcile these two competing, at least in some ways, competing statements? You have to read the whole book. And I would argue in one sitting, as often as you can, so that you can fit these little pieces in and see how they, how they work together. From a big picture perspective, this book should drive us to humility. Like, boy, I do not matter. And that should be the case for the most important people in the world. Boy, I do not matter because... History is not going to remember my name down the road, far enough down the road. This book should drive us to humility. It's like if you watch, there's a YouTube video called The Power of Ten. Set in the 1970s, I think, a couple laying on a picnic blanket on Northerly Island, what is today Northerly Island in Chicago. And it starts with them laying there, and it zooms out, and it zooms out, and it zooms out. The video is like eight or ten minutes long, and most of it's zooming out. And before long, the the earth is a dot, and then just a few seconds after that, you can't even see the earth. And a few seconds after that, you're in completely different galaxies. And you just think, man, I'm small. Then you start zooming back in, and further in, and further in. You see the couple there laying on on the picnic blanket, and before long, you're inside of his hand, and you just keep going, and you keep going, and you're zooming in by powers of 10 over and over and over again. You think, man, I am huge. (laughs) But the, the whole video, I think, should drive you to humility. Look at the miraculous way in which God put me together. But boy, am I small. I mean, even the earth is a dot in light of how far you can zoom out. So this passage, this whole book, 
should make us think through what it means to be a human, what it means to be a person made in the image of God, what it means to be a vapor, as James describes us. And you might think, boy, well, how can I make my life matter? And I think 1 Corinthians answers that a little bit in the way that it talks, as we read through this past Tuesday evening, talks through the fact that one person plants seeds and another person waters seeds, but the person who really does the work is God. God is the one who gives the growth. God is the one who gives the increase. And so he says, you know, you don't boast that you're the one that planted the seed. You don't boast that you're the one who watered the seed. God's the one who does anything with that. And so one way we can look at this passage is, is what I do really matter? And we could say, well, in an ultimate sense, what really matters is our people right with God. And that drives us right to the whole message of the Bible. How do I get right with God? And the whole Bible's answer to that from beginning to end is we get right with God by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And when we are right with him, we then will live forever with him in his glory. And so this passage makes us want to ask these kinds of questions. Am I right with God? How do I get right with God? Do I matter? If I matter, how do I matter? And why do I matter? And these point us to the gospel. And so we might read verse 2 and say, man, everything is vanity. Everything is an enigma. Then you come to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, and you read that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. When we are doing work, even the work of getting in your beater car to go to your beater job, even if that's what you're doing, if you're doing it by the Lord's grace, for the Lord's glory, in faith, by faith in his name, you can do the most ridiculous job and it still matters because it's for the Lord, by the Lord's power. It's not in vain then, Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians 15. And so if you go to I don't know, let's say you go to the Chicago Botanical Garden and you see somebody there snipping away at just little blades of grass and no one's going to notice if, if that hadn't been done or not. Well, that sounds like a monotonous job if you've ever heard of one. Some of you might say, that sounds great because I love being outdoors and things like that. Well, that's fine, but that grass is still going to grow back, right? You're going to have to do it again in a couple of days. But you can do even a job like that that's monotonous and seemingly pointless You can do it by God's grace, for God's glory. And Paul says, labor in the Lord is not in vain. The book of Ecclesiastes will help us wrestle through these questions of what am I here to do? How can I make sure that my life is not just in vain? That it's not just worthless when I die? Paul wants, uh, I'm sorry, I keep saying that. Solomon wants you to know you're going to die. He wants that to weigh heavily on you. He wants you to see the bleakness of how short your life is so that you'll be reminded of what is truly important in life. Toward the conclusion of his article, Bart Giamatti, again, this was written back in the 1970s, he described how quickly the season, the baseball season, came crashing down. He's talking about how it looks like the Red Sox have a chance. If they win today and the Yankees lose today, we go to the playoffs. All we need to do is win this game that he was at. And he says, the aisles are jammed. The place is on its feet. There's a, there's a batter up. There's a guy on base. If he hits a home run, the Red Sox win. That's, that's what's happening here. The aisles are jammed. The place is on its feet. The wrappers, the programs, the Coke cups and peanut shells, the doctrines of an afternoon. 
the anxieties, the things that have to be done tomorrow, the regrets about yesterday, the accumulation of a summer, all forgotten, while hope bites and takes hold where a moment before it seemed it would be swept out with the tide. The sound was overwhelming. Fathers pounded their sons on the back. Cars pulled off the road. Households froze. New England exulted in its blessedness and roared its thanks for all good things. Riles threw, rice swung, and it was over. One pitch, a fly to center, and it stopped. Summer died in New England. And like rain sliding off a roof, the crowd slipped out of Fenway quickly, with only a steady murmur of concern for the drive ahead remaining of the roar. There are those who are born with the wisdom to know that nothing lasts. I'm a simpler creature. I need to think something lasts forever, and it might as well be that state of being that is a game. It might as well be that in a green field in the sun. Art Giamatti was right that something needs to last forever. In a bit of irony, just five months after he became baseball's commissioner, he died suddenly of a heart attack. And he went the way that Solomon went, the way that we will all go. He died quickly, even in language that Ecclesiastes would use, before his time. Something lasts forever, yes, but it's not baseball, it's not summer. It's not this life. Our souls last forever, though. And that's why we turn to Christ for hope and forgiveness and eternal life. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, cause the weight of this passage to rest on our hearts in such a way that it will drive us to Christ himself, in such a way that we can realize that we want our one life to last, knowing that only what's done for Christ will last. And so we pray that we would be wise people, like wise Solomon, shepherding us toward a right view of life, toward a right view of time, toward a right view of our work and our relationships. Make us people who turn in faith to Christ as the only one who can make our labor not be in vain. We pray in Christ's name. <coughs>